from the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, what churches can do about educational inequality. Host Leith Anderson, president of the NAE, talks with Nicole Baker Fulgham, founder and president of the Expectations Project. Let's join in. I'm Leith Anderson, president of NAE, here today with Nicole Baker Fulgham. She is a native of Detroit, graduated from the University of Michigan, and then joined Teach for America, where she taught fifth grade in Compton, California. Nicole received her doctorate in education from UCLA with a focus on urban education policy and teacher preparation. She joined the national staff of Teach for America and held several key leadership roles as Vice President for New Site Development, Vice President for Teacher Training and Support, and Vice President of Faith Community Relations, all of this before starting the Expectations Project. The Expectations Project is a nonprofit organization that develops and mobilizes faith communities to help close the academic achievement gap in public schools. She's written two books. One of them is Educating All God's Children, what Christians can and should do to improve public education for low-income kids. And her second book is Schools in Crisis. Christianity Today magazine featured Nicole as one to watch and named her one of the 50 women leaders influencing the church and culture. And she serves on the board of the National Association of Evangelicals. So welcome, Nicole. We're delighted to have you on today's conversation. Thank you so much, Leith. I'm very happy to join you all. And I have a whole list of questions that I want to ask you, but I'm going to dive in the deep end, and that is education inequality and academic achievement gap. So these are big concepts. So help us who are not official educators to understand what do these phrases mean? What does it look like? Sure. What it looks like is that we essentially in our country still have, despite you know, decades now past um, school desegregation, we still have two separate and pretty unequal school systems in our public schools. And so that looks like kids in a wealthier community, a suburban community often, are going to fantastic schools. The buildings are bright and shiny. They're well-resourced. The teachers you know, have graduate degrees and they have you know, advanced placement classes for the students and not surprisingly many of those kids are going on to college and becoming very successful and you contrast that with schools in low-income communities where families are struggling financially and the schools are very different they physically generally look different um, but beyond that the expectations are often lower for kids in those communities and in those schools and they may not have the resources and the advanced classes and supplies and everything that we know makes is necessary to ensure kids achieve and again not surprisingly in low-income communities about half the kids don't graduate from high school and only about 10 percent will graduate from college and we see this in city and city across the the United States where you can literally look at an income background for a particular zip code the average family income and there's pretty uh, direct correlation to the number of kids that are graduating and going on to college. And that is a massive um, inequality in our school system. And then that's what many of us refer to as inequality and the achievement gap. And we're talking big numbers here. I think there's something like 16 million children who are growing up in poverty. Is that right? 
There, there are 16 million as last count. And in the poverty line, as I think we all know, is very low in this country, right? So we're talking families that are very, very, very struggling, very much struggling economically. And half of those kids won't graduate from high school. Um, and so it affects those 16 million kids who are living in poverty, but also millions more who are living sometimes just above the poverty line and are the working poor in our country. And their schools are often struggling as well. And is there a trend line here? Is it stable? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? You know, it's actually um, been pretty stable um, since we started collecting this data um, a few decades ago. And in some cases, the gaps have gotten wider, actually, um, between um, either racial groups or income groups. And there's a few pockets of places where we see things starting to improve um, in, in certain districts around the country. And in schools, we certainly see improvement where you know, schools in low-income communities are exceeding all of those expectations. So we know we have examples all around the nation of things that are working, which really prove the potential right, that kids in, in every community have. But it's the, the challenge is getting those examples of success to scale and, and having more people that are invested in ensuring that that happens for all of God's kids. What I personally find both sobering and sad is if you're talking 16 million children, the consequences of this for our society a generation out are significant, but it's sad for children who their lives are completely going to be impacted by what they didn't get when they were preschoolers or elementary school students. Absolutely, and these academic disparities start, as you said, literally in preschool, where we see kids who don't have access to a preschool at all compared to parents who were blessed and fortunate to be able to send their child to the best preschool in, in, the, in the, the, you know, the local area, but that may cost you know, $15,000 a year or $20,000 in some cases. And so those kids end up going to kindergarten incredibly well prepared. And some kids end up in kindergarten who've never learned how to hold a pencil or can't identify letters. And so the disparity starts so young and it's heartbreaking because we know as Christians that God, we're all made in God's image, and we have potential and a purpose and a plan. And I believe our education system is one of the ways that God helps all of us identify a part of our purpose, right? When it's, when it's good, you can sort of identify, oh, goodness, look, I'm gifted in math. Maybe I'll be an engineer, or I'm a really strong writer. Perhaps I'll be a journalist. But when you can't tap into that, it really does potentially change the path for millions of kids, and it's heartbreaking. Your interest and engagement comes out of your own personal experience and story. You tell some of that in your book, uh, Educating All God's Children, which is an excellent book. I love recommending it to people, so um, I, I'm, a, I'm a good endorser of it. But <laughs> Thank tell you. a little bit about how your own story sort of informs your passion on this issue. Sure. You know, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, and grew up in a working class community that had a variety of middle class families, working class, and families below the poverty line. And over time, you know, economics in Detroit got, got worse, not surprisingly because of the auto industry. And our schools followed along with that, right? All the struggles that come along with, with schools in low income communities were in my neighborhood. I was fortunate, though, to get accepted by the time I was in high school to a, a magnet school across town in Detroit. It's an exam school. You have to take a test to get in. And it was phenomenal. So it was a Detroit public high school that had you know, advanced placement, everything. I had teachers that had PhDs in their subject areas teaching my high school classes. And um, I was surrounded with a culture of excellence where 
great things were expected of us. And 99% of us went off to college, and we were predominantly African-American school, a lot of us from working class or poor families. But we were able to be successful in part because we were prepared by the time we got to high school, but also, I think, more importantly, because of the standard that was set for us. And that was very different from all my friends in my neighborhood who went to the local high school um, that I would have gone to, my brother would have gone to, had we not gotten into Renaissance High School. And their experience could not have been any more different. Like, there was no advanced placement curriculum for my friends. In fact, I had friends who, in four years of high school, never heard anyone mention the word college to them one time. They had no idea what the SAT was, the ACT. It just wasn't a part of the ethos of that school. And for me as a young person, you know, you know what's going on. You see this dramatic difference. You know, I felt guilty about what I got versus my friends. But more than anything, I think it made me um, angry. And so for me, combining that with, you know, growing up as a Christian and, you know, hearing God's word every Sunday and then also hearing that my pastor um, in the African-American church tradition, you know, talked a lot about our responsibility to live our faith out and try to make the world better, those two things just made you know, perfect sense to me to try to combine those two interests and those two passions, which is why I ended up um, going to teach in Compton. So everybody should care about our schools and everybody should care about children, but especially people of faith. I mean, do, do we have a different take on this because we're Christians, because we're believers? You know, it's a great question. I actually think we should. Um, you know, I believe we are called, you know, to be in this world and to be salt and light, and that can take a lot of different forms, right? It can be sort of more traditional ministry um, through our churches, but it also can be building relationships and building a heart and a passion for ensuring that the least of these, which really is kids in low-income communities, I mean, they're already kids, right? So society doesn't necessarily give them a voice. And then add on top of that that they're growing up in poverty. I mean, I can't imagine any group of people in our country who are more disenfranchised. And so developing a heart and a passion and wanting to work alongside those families, I just think it's a wonderful expression of our faith. And goodness, if we're not going to do it, and if we don't feel the love and just the desire to support and to help families and kids grow into their purpose and have quality schools, I don't know who's going to do it. And so I do think we have a, a specific responsibility to, to live that out. And it gets, again, a wonderful example of putting our faith in action. And historically, we have. Before there was public education, which all of us have grown up with and kind of assumed, uh, children didn't know how to read or write, and that's how the Sunday schools began. Churches started Sunday schools, and they were targeted at low-income children and families. And from my understanding, it was about teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it was also about learning how to read and write, and churches did that until public education came along and uh, took over the public schools or provided the public schools. So we do have a history. We do, and that's a, it's just a wonderful point to bring out because I think in the you know, more recent memory, it's very easy to just see school, public schools in particular as very separate from, from people of faith and the Christian tradition for all the reasons that we know um, where people are, are discussing, whether it's lack of prayer in schools or whatnot, but we have this amazing history. Um, as you mentioned with the Sunday school starting, you know, that, of course, you know, some of that began in England and for the same reason right, that it did in America. It really was targeted towards poor families because kids weren't getting educated. And this was not a secret. Everyone knew this. And it, again, 
what a wonderful way to also you know teach the gospel and to minister to people, but really to look at my goodness, if we want to have an educated citizenry, we have to start somewhere and goodness, people should learn to read. And I think that's just such a great piece of our history that the church really did take the lead on that for, for, for many years. And I think it's something that we should hearken back to and, and look at as a proud part of our legacy that we should really rekindle uh, these days. Well, I'm a product of public schools and all the way through public schools. We did a survey, NAE's Evangelical Leaders Survey in 2012, and 91, excuse me, 93% of evangelical leaders have sent their children to public schools. So, I mean, that's a lot. And it means that within the Christian community, we are clearly, overwhelmingly uh, educated in public schools and sending our children there. But let's go back to the church. So what, what difference can a church make? What can a church do? And, and what are you doing to get churches engaged with school, public schools in their communities? Well, it really starts, we believe, with awareness. And for, for people growing up or going to churches in urban or poor rural communities, they're likely aware that these disparities exist. And I think generally we all kind of know that there's something amiss in, in low-income schools. But we believe helping people truly understand the depth of the, the inequality is an important first step in order to have our eyes opened if they're not fully opened yet. And, and we combine that, though, with helping people become aware of what is working because you can spend a lot of time just getting depressed and sad about all these statistics we've been talking about without lifting up examples of these counterfactuals that really do prove, oh my goodness, well there's a school on the south side of Chicago that is sending 100% of its African American men to college every year. The exact same demographic, how are they doing something different that other schools haven't figured out how to do yet? And it's those types of examples that as we build awareness, we believe give people a faith, the hope that we need to have to really be prophetic, quite frankly, about what's possible for all of God's kids. And then we work to connect people to ways that they can get involved in meaningful ways locally. And we, that's called compassionate service is how we view it. And I think that's something that, again, a lot of churches have been doing um, whether it's tutoring, mentoring, um, supporting teachers in, in some tangible ways. And we think that's great and should continue. But what we really want our, our folks working with us and congregations to realize is to start to look at the different patterns and sort of entrenched issues they see. I mean, the, the perfect way to describe this is, you know, we've had some, a couple churches that have been tutoring at a school, you know, for a couple of years, and they've seen the principal turn over five or six times. And they're asking us, wait a minute, how is the school, we're tutoring, but how is the school ever going to really see improvement when, for whatever reason, they can't seem to keep a principal there? What's going on? And so then that leads people to look at long-term systemic issues, which for us is really how you change the game, right? It's how do we train and support principals or teachers effectively so that they'll want to stay in low-income schools? What policies need to be put in place in a school district so we can ensure that happens? And that's the long game. And so for us, advocacy is an important issue that we believe um, doesn't have to be super political, um, but it has to be done in a way that we're thinking about building support for really deep changes that need to happen to ensure that all of God's kids have, have quality schools. So there are two parts of that. One is engaging the schools, the church or the individual doing it, and the other is advocacy. Do they need to be the same people? Are, are there some people who are good at one of those and then, you know, not good at the other one of those? Can we split it or do they have to be the same thing? You know, that's what we're finding out. Um, so we actually think that there are some people who are just naturally drawn to, to either, and we think that's great. And there's some people who 
you know, for a host of reasons, they, for them, they want to see the immediate and sort of building relationships with kids and families is what they're probably best at, and we love to support that and help people do that in hopefully, you know, very effective, meaningful ways. But then I think there are another group of people who, oh my goodness, they're all about lifting their voice because they see that as part of a Christian's call to speak into the public square. And, and so, yes, I think they can be two separate people. Um, sometimes it's the same, but I think it often is two different groups of individuals who are just drawn to, to different types of work on, on education. And, of course, the advantage of a church is a church is a community, so you can get both sides of that, that people know each other and, and will share with each other. Nicole, Absolutely. You know, I, I've actually experientially uh, learned a lot from you in the Expectations Project. You, you invited me to a meeting with the chancellor of the Washington, D.C. schools, and she was articulate and delightful. And I was especially encouraged by the good news. And she gave some marvelous statistics on improvements in what has been apparently a troubled school system. She also, I, I was impressed on the number of Christian teachers. There's a, a gospel choir of Washington, D.C. teachers, <laughs> and mention of how many pastors' wives are, uh, are teachers in, in Washington, D.C. public schools. And then, and then we visited Indianapolis and went to a church in a challenging neighborhood and school area, and I was totally impressed with what that church has done and is doing. So can you tell us some more about where it's actually working? Absolutely. You know, it is interesting, you know, Christians are everywhere in the public school system. And again, I think it's really easy to think that we're not there and we don't have a presence. But it's just naturally part of so many communities and it's it's beautiful to see. And the examples that DC's Chancellor gave are wonderful, as well as some of the things in Indianapolis. I mean, just a couple of more examples. There um, is a church in Indianapolis that has started a phenomenal preschool. Um, and this church is, is very small, you know, but they have made their commitment on education and have decided, my goodness, we have, you know, thousands of kids in Indianapolis who aren't able, as I shared earlier, to, to find a quality preschool. And so they found grants, they worked with the United Way and brought in other partners and started this preschool that is educating kids from a wide variety of backgrounds, but with a specific focus now on kids from, from poorer families. And it's just beautiful to see the, the excellence that they're providing, right? I mean, they're really demonstra demonstrating God's love and mercy and grace to these families because of the excellent preschool education the kids are getting. You know, another great example is a church that um, was connected to a low-income public school, and they asked well, how they could be helpful. And the, the school said, well, can you take the kids that are most struggling? And we don't really know what to do with them. And so they started this entire mentoring and tutoring program in the church. Obviously, parents opted and signed and agreed to have their kids go to a church after school every day. But they didn't just hire you know, people in the from their church to tutor them. They actually found a grant to hire teachers to tutor kids because they thought, oh my goodness, this is going to get kids further. And so combined with the academic support and the spiritual development they were allowed to give these children, the kids completely turned things around. And the school is now saying, can you take more of our kids? And mm -hmm, schools around the city are saying, can you replicate this program You know, if parents choose to opt into it? And it's just, again, the power we have for, for compassionate service. But also, you know, on the preschool front in Indianapolis, churches also realized around the state that there was not enough 
funding and options for, for low-income families to have preschool. And so they really, again, lifted their voices collectively and spoke about this publicly and really helped um, create a groundswell among faith leaders combined with other community groups who were pushing for, for more preschool options for low-income families. And as a result, the governor signed a piece of legislation um, in a church, by the way, <laughs> signed a bill in a church um, to allow um, low-income families to have preschool options. So it's just a wonderful example of both direct service and compassionate service as well as faithful advocacy where we really see, see churches stepping up and making a difference. There may be fear in some churches and with some pastors of not being welcome in schools, that there's such a wall between separation of church and state that maybe they shouldn't even ask, they shouldn't even offer. Uh, is that something to worry about or not? You know, I don't think it is if we come with the right approach, right? So if we come really without an agenda, meaning we're literally coming and wanting to help, and asking what we can do to be helpful. Um, we just have seen time and time again that schools are pretty open, and particularly in communities where, as we said earlier, there are already a lot of Christians or people of faith working in the public school system anyway. There's sort of this cultural acceptance of that, and not in every school district, I would say, but in a lot of school districts, particularly urban districts, it's just very seamless anyway. Um, and I don't think we've had any instance with the clergy we work with where someone has been told, we really don't want your help. Now, I think there are instances where there may have been some you know, not so great perceptions of people's motives wanting to work with schools where that may have been a challenge. But again, it hasn't been something we've experienced, but I, I do know that does happen. But again, if we take a very open approach where we're just humbly coming to ask, how can we be helpful? Um, we have a church who wants to support this school. I think that approach um, wins every time. Yeah, we shouldn't be scared off if there are bad stories because I think there are bad stories with just about every aspect of life. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We need to, need to seize the good ones. All right, well, let me just focus down really practically and sort of... Uh, you know, finish up with uh, what should we do? And I know the first one I want to say, number one on the list is uh, read Nicole Baker Fulgham's book, Educating mm -hmm. All God's Children, because it talks about this. And this would be a great tool for church leaders and adult classes to actually study through and then say, what can we do? Beyond that, specifically, what can a pastor or a church, how do they go about engaging and making a difference? Yep, I think having uh, some type of awareness session where you bring in either a, a public school teacher from a, a local low-income school to talk about their experiences and what the needs are to really sort of shine a light on something in your local community where it really hits home for people. You don't really have to go far even if you live in a wealthier community. You can probably go 10 miles in any direction, maybe 15, and find a school that has a need. And so really start to build that relationship and build that awareness by inviting those people. They, might, they may already be members of your congregation to speak about that can be a great way to kick things off. And then looking at the schools in your community that have a need and seeing where do we have existing relationships where we know someone where we can start you know, the outreach to get a chance to, to support this school in a way that makes sense for them, right? You know, we don't actually advocate that people sort of start their own tutoring programs or mentoring programs simply because it's very hard to do it well. But learning about what's existing in your neighborhood and your school district that's already working and tapping into an existing program and helping and volunteering through that is really the best way to get started because you're more likely to have success, which is important so kids can achieve and, and families can get the needs met that they have. Um, but the third thing we would recommend 
is to really start to read and learn about what's going on with education in your community. So beyond the schools, but sort of one level up at the school district. Um, there are lots of great articles in your local paper, websites, things that you can begin to educate yourself about and learn, okay, well, does my local public school district have preschool options for all families? Do they have a way to ensure that teachers get the quality support they need at the school district level to be effective? And start to educate yourself, and you may begin to identify, and no doubt you will, issues that, that probably need some long-term strategy around. And there may be a way to pull people in your congregation together with other churches in the area who want to learn more about some of these advocacy issues and potentially do something on the systemic issues as well. And by the way, you should feel free to sign up for the Expectations Project website. Um, on, our, on our website, sign up for our email list, and we'd be happy to send you all resources as well. So what's your web address? It is here. Good. Thank you, Lise. It is the expect. It's actually we changed it. It's expectations.org. So just expectations.org, and you can find us um, and sign up for our, our website. And we have lots of our email list. Excuse me. We have lots of other tools and resources that you all can download. And we're happy to be a resource in any way that we can by making connections to people in, in different cities around the country. Thank you for all you are doing. This is so practical, so challenging, and has such high potential for doing good uh, and for transformation of people's lives. So our guest today on today's conversation has been Nicole Baker-Fulgham, who is the founder and president of The Expectations Project, and again, the author of the excellent Educating All God's Children. I'm Leith Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Nicole. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.